Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The prosecutors in Ken Starr's office had a code name for their planned confrontation with Monica Lewinsky at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. They called it Prom Night. As you may remember from Episode 1, this was the secret operation scheduled for January 16, 1998. The plan was to convince Lewinsky to wear a wire in order to catch the president committing a crime. The prosecutors referred to it internally as Prom Night in the days leading up to it. I recently had the opportunity to ask Ken Starr in an interview what Prom Night meant. Here's what he said. I didn't fashion that. Uh, It just kind of emerged out of our process of uh, bantering and reflecting uh, on it. But it has become, to my colleagues and comrades, uh, forever known as by that name. But it could have been a very happy event, and it didn't turn out to be so happy given the fact that she just said, no, I'm not going to make the deal, and the rest of the story had to unfold. Who, but who? I guess, I guess my curiosity was, who was the one who was going to prom in, in this in the in the in the in the analogy or in, in the metaphor? Well, she was being invited to be a part of our community. So, welcome to the truth-seeking party. So, we're we're trying to get to the bottom of this. These are very serious allegations that the president had lied under oath. I was reminded of this explanation last week when Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh was answering questions in a congressional hearing about the meaning of phrases like Renata alumni and Devil's Triangle. Devil's Triangle? Drinking game. How's it played? Three glasses in a triangle. And? You ever played quarters? No. Okay, it's a quarters game. As many listeners probably know, Kavanaugh worked for Starr in the independent counsel's office as a prosecutor. In fact, Kavanaugh himself alluded to this when he said in his opening statement last Thursday that Democrats were opposing his nomination as revenge for the Clintons. I'm pretty certain prom night was not Kavanaugh's coinage. He actually wasn't working in the independent counsel's office during the lead-up to the January 16th confrontation. But there is something very Brett Kavanaugh about prom night, as well as Starr's flat rejection of its adolescent but sinister connotations. A truth-seeking party? That's what prom night meant? Seems like it probably meant something else. As you may have noticed, I'm breaking the first rule of slow burn here by talking about the present. The reason I'm allowing myself this indulgence is that this is not a regular episode of Slow Burn. It's an episode meant to entice you into joining me in the expanded Slow Burn universe, where there are no rules, and which you can access by joining Slate's membership program, Slate Plus. 
The clip you heard from Ken Starr a moment ago is from an interview I did with him in September. He came to the Slate Studios to promote his new memoir, Contempt. We talked for a full hour, and we covered a lot of ground. And then I proceeded to use less than one minute of the interview on Slow Burn. The whole rest of the buffalo was just left totally untouched. What if there was a way for the Slow Burn team to share stuff that for one reason or another, we couldn't fit into any of the regular episodes? How much deeper could we go into the story of the Clinton impeachment if we had the ability to put out bonus material that only Slate Plus members could hear? And what if we could make some money on it? This is Slow Burn. I'm your host, Leon Nafok. And this is Secret Tracks, a special episode in which you'll hear a series of brief excerpts from interviews that we've released exclusively through Slate Plus. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. One thing we've learned from making Slow Burn Season 2 is that the Clinton saga is very rich. It's a story that rewards sustained attention and a willingness to duck into side streets. And that's what we do on Slate Plus. When I say we, I'm talking about myself and Mary Wilson, a Hall of Fame Slate producer who co-hosts Slow Burn Plus with me. Every week we start out by talking for about 10 minutes about behind-the-scenes stuff, how we worked around the fact that we didn't get to interview Monica Lewinsky, for example, what it was like to meet Linda Tripp, Mary and I also talk about details that were left out of the show, like the subplot of the Travelgate scandal involving Linda Bloodworth Thomason, the creator of Designing Women and the author of a recent viral column about Les Moonves. The main event on every episode of Slow Burn Plus is the interview. If you do the math, we've released seven episodes of Slow Burn Season 2 so far. We've got one more next week. And for every one of those episodes, we've also given Slate Plus members a standalone interview with someone relevant to that specific part of the story. So, for instance, our long Ken Starr interview, that appeared as a supplement to episode six. After episode three, we released an interview with Walter Dellinger, the lawyer who argued on the Clinton administration's behalf in front of the Supreme Court in Clinton v. Jones. We didn't get to spend much time on Clinton v. Jones in episode three, but you may remember that the administration's position was that if a president gets sued in civil court, he should be allowed to put a hold on it until after he's out of office. In our interview, Walter Dellinger explained how he felt about this argument, and what happened the night before he made it. There's one thing that I would like to have been able to tell the court, and that's what happened the night before the argument. So uh, I was driving home from the Justice Department after my last night of preparation. It must have been near midnight. I guess that would have been Sunday night, January the 12th, 1997. And my beeper goes off, and it says... Urgent, 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 quadruple exclamation points. This is the night before you, you were supposed to The appear. night before the argument. And so I pulled the car over. I called in. They said, the president has to speak to you immediately. I said, I'm 100 yards from my house. Let me make this <laughs> call back on a landline. <laughs> so I went into the house. I called back. They put me through to the president. And he said, and that memorable point, Walter, how you feeling about the argument? <laughs> I said, <laughs> I said, Mr. Pre- I said, Mr. President, first of all, 
you need to understand, I am not your lawyer, uh, and you're not my client. Bob Bennett is your lawyer. My client is the United States of America. So, so you and I do not have a, a lawyer-client <laughs> privilege, and, and my arguments have to be arguments in the interest of the United States if there's any divergence. I got that. I got that. I just want to tell you that. <laughs> uh, the president said, I, I found a case, the president tells me. Uh-huh. And it was something like a case from Oklahoma in 1912, <laughs> you know, or a case from Missouri in 1920. I don't, Meaning he found, I don't a remember case, that. he found a case that he thought would help your, you. That he thought would help the argument, <laughs> right. <laughs> and he said it, it was a lawsuit against the governor, and the court had held that the lawsuit should be postponed until the governor was no longer in office. So he gave me the site, and I said, well, I'm writing it down, I'm writing it down. <laughs> but, but I did not think the Supreme Court was going to think it ought to be having to decide this case based on what some state court had decided at the turn of the century about a governor. Right. You weren't impressed. You thought... You thought... I, I, I didn't think that was... I mean, and, and the president was actually, as a, as a president Clinton, had a great legal mind. But this, this was, as a matter of Supreme Court practice, <laughs> was not going to be impressive on the court. Yeah. So. Did you tell him that you, that you didn't think this was going to help that much? No, no, no. I didn't want to get into an argument. It was after midnight. In fact... My wife, Ann, called down from upstairs, and she says, Walter, what are you doing? You've got to come to bed. You've got an argument in the morning. And I cupped my hand over the phone, and I said, I'm talking to the president. He's, he's been researching state court cases. <laughs> in any event, the next morning, I'm in the argument, and, and Justice Stevens is pressing me on whether this would really require much of a president's time and attention to have litigation. Justice Stevens says, isn't it the case that his lawyers will handle anything and it's unlikely that this would occupy any of the president's time? Right. <laughs> and of course, I was so tempted to say, if I could step out of role, Justice Stevens, I need to tell you that we believe that East Timor, I, I have to use hypotheticals here, not yeah. the real cases, but you know, Justice East Timor is developing nuclear weapons, and we're trying to decide whether, you know, to launch a military attack to take out their weapon system. And do you know what the President of the United States was doing at 1 a.m. this morning? <laughs> I think it would have proven the case that for any president, not just Bill Clinton, for any president, it can be all-consuming and distracting when you're sued personally. That was Walter Dellinger. The next clip I want to play for you is from my interview with cutthroat Clinton advisor Dick Morris. Morris appeared in episode four. Clinton brought him in as a shadow guru after the Democrats got clobbered in the 94 midterms. In October of 94, uh, right before the disaster in November when they lost both houses of Congress, I did a very extensive survey for him. Uh, I found that when you cited the major achievements of his administration, lowering the unemployment rate, cutting the deficit, repaying a portion of the national debt, uh, lowering interest rates. Nobody believed that he was responsible for that, hmm. and it wouldn't help him. But when you looked at his more minor achievements, appointing pro-choice judges to the court, getting uh, family leave passed, people loved that. So in a phone conversation in the middle of October with Bill and Hillary, I told them that, and Bill ranted and raved. But I did cut the deficit. I did cut the unemployment rate. I did create 4,000 jobs. I'm not going to hide that. And I said, nobody will believe you when you say it. It'll be like ducks quacking. They won't hear it. Talk about instead the accomplishments, the smaller accomplishments that you've had that people will believe. 
And then Hillary said to him, Bill, don't try to get elected for the right reasons. Just try to get elected. And he wouldn't do it. He insisted on that stuff, and it had no effect. Nobody would listen to him. Mm -hmm. And then two days before the election, he called and said, what do you think? And I said, you lose the Senate and the House. And he said, the Senate, maybe, but definitely not the House. And then the day after he lost the House, he brought me in. (laughs) What do you think he uh, needed you for? that you couldn't get from the people who were working for him already at the time. Congress shifted to the Republicans, and he had no idea how to govern with the Republican Congress. Establishing his relevancy was terribly important, obviously. But how can the president be irrelevant? What would that well, mean? Well, because he couldn't get anything passed, he couldn't get anything done, much as uh, Obama had no idea how to govern with the Republican Congress. Did you, did you consider him a, cl- a close friend? No. Uh, he, uh, he kept a rather clear line between personal friends and the hired help. (laughs) Did you like him? Well, I certainly admired him, and uh, I sometimes liked him. I sometimes didn't. Uh, Bill Clinton is a very, very complex person, and it's very hard to have a unitary opinion of liking or not liking him. Yeah. It's easy to admire him, which I do. There's a scene in uh, Peter Baker's book uh, where where Clinton is addressing his cabinet after his grand jury testimony and after his speech, basically he's apologizing for misleading them and for asking them to lie on his behalf without knowing it. And he has, makes a comment there. He says, I've been waking up angry for the last four and a half years because of this whitewater thing. And the implication is that he did this, that this happened because of the stress of having to fight off all these outside forces. No, I don't think that. First of all, when, People asked me, how do I feel after I left him? How do do I feel about his misleading the entire administration? And I said, if they were dumb enough to believe him, they're entitled to what they got. (laughs) But I do not believe without evidence to support it. I do without evidence to support my view. My view is that he did not increase his sexual activity during his time with Monica. He got discovered. The others never did. I see. You're saying there were others before. Yes. Get discovered. I can name about five, but won't. <laughs> <laughs> can you tell me what, what you felt after? Let me explain came out? the reason for Bill's promiscuity. Um, I concluded that he is a classical narcissist. And a narcissist is somebody without an internal sense of self worth. Their sense of who they are comes from the reflection not in a lake like Narcissus, but in other people's eyes. So he chose politics as an occupation where that feedback is constantly available. And the feedback was, is essential to his being. People always say that Bill Clinton is empathetic. He's not. He's like a headlight reflector on the highway. You shine your views, your emotions. He picks them up and reflects them back to you. But when the car passes, you look back and it's just a cold lump of metal. And I believe that at some point, even as president, the crowds go home and the press goes away and the clean lights are turned off. And you're still left with that insatiable need for a reflection of yourself. So you look for it in a girl's eyes. And that that essentially was why he was promiscuous. I don't think it was fundamentally sexual. I think it was psychological at a very core level. That explains like maybe why he wanted it, but what do you think explains his willingness to take the 
incredible risks that he must have He's realized. Surrounded he was taking. by enablers led by Hillary, who have made it possible for him to do that. Every time he's done it, he's gotten away with it. Why did he risk Monica Lewinsky? Because he got away with Jennifer Flowers. But just, I mean, to be under, to be beating away a lawsuit that is about sexual harassment involving a subordinate, and then, you know, in in the exact same part of this timeline, yep. he's starting a relationship with, with a new person. What you need, you need psychologically. It's very hard to understand, I think. It's just because you, you 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 have to assume that he cared what happened to his presidency. Once on President's Day in 95, he came into the meeting with me and he said, I just met with the reporters and they asked me on President's Day, what would you like to ask your idol, John Kennedy, if you could ask him one question? And then he told me we were alone. I wanted to ask, how did you do it? Was there like a closet or a staircase I don't know about? How did you get away with it? And he said, but I couldn't say that. So I said, what's it like to be president at a time when people are not alienated from their government? Can you tell me how you felt once everything came out and you found out, for example, that you were on the phone with him during one of these assignations? Um, I wasn't judgmental on him. I, 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 nothing that I didn't know. I didn't know about Monica. But, um, you know... I, I never felt he was a beacon of personal morality. Uh, nobody voted for Bill Clinton because he was moral. They voted for him to fix the economy, and he did. My actual reaction, my major reaction at the time, was, oh, shit, there were a lot of great things we were planning to do in his second term we won't be able to do now. That, again, was Dick Morris. Next up, we have an interview with Dylan Teachout, who served as an intern in the Office of the Independent Counsel during the summer of 1998. The interview was conducted by slow burn researcher Madeline Kaplan. Here she is talking to Teach Out about what it was like to come home after the publication of the Star Report, which she helped copy edit. Did you get any responses like directed at you personally from people you knew or people who knew you that, that you'd worked on the report? I remember uh, I had a friend in college who was a, from a Christian family in the South. And I remember he said to me that his mom was just really grateful for what the work of Ken Starr and just really appreciative of any support I had given that effort. And that was kind of funny to me because they were just such a Christian family. Yeah. um, Yeah. Did you get any responses from more liberal people that you recall? One thing that happened to me is that I remember... The report came out. We I went back to college, and a couple weeks later, and I had a sense of, um, I guess, pride about it, or a sense of, like, I did really respect the people I was working with in that office, for the most part, and understood, to some extent, the logic of what they were trying to do, and kind of sympathy, and so a loyalty to it, just a loyalty related to the amount of time. Mm-hmm or whatever effort in. And I just remember reading this piece by Adam Gopnik in the New Yorker a couple of weeks after it came out, that was just such a takedown of it and feeling like his points were all valid and just feeling like really almost like ashamed or taken down or kind of uh, pleasantly confused or something just like that. Those, those two things kind of seem like they could both exist. Mm-hmm. Like that the people in the office had been doing what they thought was important and good work 
or many of them were, and then also that it was like deeply problematic to publish for, for a lot of reasons. So that was like just a strong memory I have of just that particular piece was like this. <sighs> The, the the liberal public response in a nutshell was kind of embodied mm-hmm. in that piece. And so I just, that was a moment that stuck with me around like a kind of a deepening sense of shame about being involved in it. Do you think about it differently now? Do you think than you did then? Yeah. So this, the Me Too movement and the kind of exposure over the last couple of years or of um, men in powerful positions who have taken advantage of women had me revisit my involvement and that kind of embarrassment about it. And it's still complicated. Like to me, part of the critique of the star report somehow included a minimizing of Bill Clinton's kind of sexual predation or sexually predatory behavior. And so thinking about the star report in the context of the Me Too movement made me feel like Bill Clinton's kind of predatory behavior is is really important and shouldn't necessarily be minimized. And and especially the stories of the women who talked about it shouldn't be minimized. Mm -hmm. By saying that, I don't mean that I think the Star Report was justified. It just makes my personal role in it more complicated. I shared with you the other day that... um, reading about Eric Schneiderman, I had that, what felt like such a parallel experience where I shouldn't be reading these really intimate details of someone's relationship. Like this feels really uncomfortable and awkward and yet also important if people are going to be believed. Like, I think that's a little bit about what the office of the independent counsel is trying to say is when you don't back up some claims by women with a lot of details, then people really want to give the benefit of the doubt to the person who's being accused who denies doing the thing. Mm-hmm. And so that I think that's played out with like Bill Cosby and others. It's like you have to just bury people in the details, in these really uncomfortable details that they don't want to know in order to have the women be believed. All right, that was Madeline Kaplan with Dylan Teachout. Last but not least, we have a clip from my interview with Linda Tripp whom I spoke to for about three and a half hours on her horse farm a few months back. Here is Tripp talking about her portrayal in the media after the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal broke. I want to make sure I ask you about what it was like after the story broke for you. Do we have to go there? So bad. It's just so bad. Um, Watching my family have to endure... All of the hate and the venom and the constant uh, scrutiny by the media, just private life ceased to exist. Uh, that was that was very difficult. And uh, they were sort of tarred with the same brush. They were my children, so they were the spawn of Satan. Um, I pride myself on being pretty strong. Where I'm weakest is where my kids are vulnerable. And the notion that they were seeing their mother on Saturday Night Live being portrayed that way was not the greatest feeling. Do you remember ever feeling, like, self-doubt to the point where you, like, watched these depictions of yourself and, you know, listened to people call you a villain and all this kind of thing? And actually, like, did did any part of you ever come to believe it and see yourself that way? Well, I was so consumed with guilt for those three months of whatever you want to call it, the three months, October, November, and December, 
that it resonated with me. Yeah, because I felt pretty much villainous-ish. I certainly looked the part, and let's just say that I understood why it was very easy for the Clintons and those in the media who chose to uh, portray me as a villain to do so. Um, Bear in mind that during that time, there was not a single entity that didn't support him. The feminists, the entertainment industry, the media complex, and the White House all said, this was between a man and his wife, it's none of her business. She's the evil one. He's the victim of this evil one. And that was the end of it. When it became an affair, when it became um, a consenting affair between two adults, then I became a prude, a prig, a, a betrayer. People didn't see it as an act of abuse. No, they saw it as how it was presented by the media, the entertainment industry, and by the Clintons. And so you don't fight that. How does someone remember? The White House has unlimited resources when it comes to PR. I mean, at the drop of a hat, they can hold a press conference. They have folks who will go out on air 24-7, and now we are in a 24-7 news cycle, and speak on their behalf. I had no one. I wasn't about to go out and and do it. You did speak once publicly, at least, right? On the courthouse steps? Yes, and you said something quite interesting. I am you. Yeah, Yeah, you said I am you. The worst statement I've ever made. I tried to make people understand that I was just a civil servant doing my job in a set of circumstances that compelled me to come forward, that I felt it was my duty to come forward that I was no different than anyone else. I didn't have an agenda other than the exposure of this behavior. It had nothing to do with politics. Had he been Republican, there would have been no difference here. For you? At all. For you, you mean? Well, yeah. But I mean... Meaning your, your, your antipathy towards him had nothing to do with his policies, but rather what he was doing His to behavior. Why can't people separate... Um, behavior from political leanings. When you color the lens through only a political prism, that's what you're left with. So the people who supported me hated him, and I believe that hasn't changed to this day. You want people to believe that you didn't do this out of a desire for financial gain or notoriety, that you want that you did this out of a sincere... But I don't want to pose it as a negative, what I didn't do. Right. I'd like them to see what I did do. And what I did do was make a conscious choice to say, this is unacceptable, completely unacceptable for anyone, let alone the leader of the free world in the Oval Office with what amounted to someone a little less than a full, fully capable of consent adult. I have always said, and the reason I keep a very low profile is, I don't want to make a career out of defending myself. If you don't understand it, there's nothing I can do about it, but you'll notice I have not written a book. I have not gone on the speaking circuit. All these things were available. I have instead retreated into private life with family, which is the only thing that counts anyway, and my dearest friends. Um, do, you th- do you still think about it every day? No. 
oh God, no. It's it, it doesn't define my life. Uh, it was a negative chapter. But you, when you're confronted with news that brings it back, the Me Too movement has um, awakened a lot of dormant feelings. Um, and remember, I have five grandchildren, uh, rather five granddaughters. I have seven grandchildren. And what I felt then so strongly, I didn't think I could feel more strongly about anything. Having a daughter close in age to Monica. However, 20 years later, I feel even more so as I watch these five little girls growing up. And the fact that we didn't take a stand against that behavior 20, year, 20 years ago um, frightens me for the future. I'm, I'm heartened by the Me Too movement. I just hope it can catch up with itself by the time my little granddaughters are in the workplace as young women. Had there been real accountability and censure for what he did, and I don't mean impeachment necessarily. I think we'd be in a different place today. I think Me Too would have been history, and we would have been so much further along with ensuring that none of this happened in the workplace, making it the exception rather than the rule. Um, as I've said before, very little has changed in that time, but I think we are finally on the right track. All right, that is our Slow Burn Plus clip show, Secret Tracks. You can sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash plus and hear the full version of all of these interviews plus the Ken Starr one and a bunch more. If you like Slow Burn, you'll like Slow Burn Plus. It's $35 for the first year. And in addition to all the stuff I've just played for you, it also gives you access to ad-free versions of all Slate podcasts. And on top of all that, it helps make shows like Slow Burn possible. Give it a whirl, slate.com slash plus. In any event, see you back here next week for the finale of Slow Burn Season 2. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.